couple of weeks ago, we began the process of uh, studying together uh, this book called The Story. Uh, now, I want to explain what this is once again so we'll know what it is. This is an abridged uh, chronological Bible. It means that it's not the whole Bible. It's uh, about 70% of probably Scripture. Uh, but it's arranged in a chronological order because uh, much of Scripture, even though it might start in Genesis and end in Revelation, uh, some of the places in between are sometimes thematic or they're grouped by uh, author, different things like that. And so this is a, a way to help us to see the overview of all of Scripture. And so when I say this, this is a great tool. This does not take the place of this, though, okay? Uh, God's Word. Now, it is... Uh, most of what's in here in, in the book, the story, is uh, Scripture. And so as you read it, it is Scripture. Anytime it's in regular font, uh, it's in, in the times that it's in italics means it's uh, transitional statements as well. But uh, it's helped us to begin the process of looking at the story of the Bible as a whole, the upper story that God of, of how God's working throughout of all of creation, and then the lower story being that of, of the things that happen day to day in the life of the characters in the Bible and how it interacts and how it uh, uh, works with us as well. This morning we're in chapter 3 of the story, uh, chapter 3 of the story, and I want to start off this morning by talking about how all of us, in a sense, start off uh, hoping, uh, thinking our story will be written in a certain way, but it sometimes doesn't always uh, work out as, as you think it's going to be planned to do. Um, for instance, many, many years ago when I was in co- uh, high school, I was finishing high school, you've got to decide kind of what you're going to do when you go to college. Any of you at that stage right now, you're trying to decide what you're going to do, you know, you're in the first year of college, you're in the third, maybe you're 30 and you hadn't figured out what you're going to do yet. Um, and so you're, or maybe 40, I don't know, you still, you know, you're still kind of figuring out what you're going to do with your life. Well, when I was uh, coming out of high school, I decided what I wanted to do was to be an architect. Um, I love design work. As a matter of fact, I look back and I was kind of asked, where did that start? I remember when I was like 10 or 12 years old, I can't remember exactly, in the early 60s. I know that was in the dark ages. But in the early 60s, I remember getting the coolest present of all time. And it was called, and I went back and actually looked it up online yesterday. It was called a Kenner Girder and Beam Construction Set. Okay, any of you ever get one of those? Remember that? It was a, okay. Some of you get, you know, if you got, I can't believe all you can engineer guys, you know, I mean, some of you guys should have gotten this thing. I mean, it was the coolest thing. It was this thing where you could actually have little, little girders that made out of plastic, red plastic, and you could put them together and build tall skyscrapers. And it had, you could build uh, construction bridges. I mean, I had a bridge that was like half the length of the stage, uh, built out of these things. I'd bought tons of these things. It was the coolest gift ever. I don't know what happened to it. Um, the great flood or something. I don't know what happened to it, but, uh, uh, but the thing is it, it got lost. But I remember back then thinking that was the coolest gift in the world. And so I, down the road, when it came to time to make a decision, I don't know if that influenced me or not, but I said, man, I want to be an architect. And so I started off my first two years of college as an architectural, uh, engineering major. Uh, I, I discovered something though. Uh, that was going to be a pipe dream. I was great. I had the strangest grades in the world. I had A's and F's. Had A's in all the design work, A's in all the things that like that I liked, not F's. But I had a lot of D's and a lot of C's and D's and not really good grades. And guess what areas? In the math areas, you know. I found out that engineering does take math. No one had ever told me that. And, uh, you know, and so I thought it was just about designing stuff, you know, just, just you know, paper and designing great things. And so I started off thinking that my story was going to be written a certain way. And so I took off a couple of years and worked a couple of years because I was working my way through school. And during that time, I really decided that the thing that God had really made me good at and the thing I really enjoyed doing was doing research and writing. And guess what I do every week now? 
A sermon is basically a research paper that's presented every week. That's kind of what a sermon is. And so uh, today, as we as we talk about this, you know, some of us have this idea that when we start life, it's going to start off with some kind of a dream. But at some point in life, sometimes reality wakes us up and that happens. Now, today we're going to look at somebody who is a dreamer, somebody who had great dreams and actually started off by God giving him some incredible dreams. His name was Joseph. Joseph uh, takes up a lot of real estate in the, in the Old Testament. Starting with chapter 37 of Genesis, he goes through the rest of the book of Genesis. He ta- his story takes up that much. And Joseph was the son of Jacob, the grandson of Isaac, and the great-grandson of Abraham, who we talked about last week. And, um, and here's what we're going to see in the story of, of Joseph. It's, he starts off with a dream, but then he experiences incredible disappointment. And um, he came, kind of grew up in a, what I would call a dysfunctional family. Uh, it was dysfunctional. It actually started back. We didn't really cover that much last week. But his son, but his father, um, his father um, Jacob was one of uh, Jacob and Esau. Two father. He was father was kind of grew up in a dysfunctional family that where there was one favorite child, and that favorite child was not Jacob. It was it was it was Esau. And, uh, and so that some things happened there and then he grows up in a family and he has a whole bunch. He has, there's 12, there's 12 kids and, and one of the, and one of the sons and, and one of the sons uh, of all the sons that's the favorite was, was Joseph. And I don't know about you guys, but it's not always good to play favorites with your kids. I mean, you might have a favorite child, but just keep it to yourself. Okay. Just keep it to yourself because it's not really helpful to uh, mention that sometimes because it's like, it was kind of like, um, uh, one of the things that happened with Joseph that let him be kind of standing out was his father gave him early on in life this uh, special coat. It was called a coat of many, many colors. Now, no one else got that. It's kind of like at Christmas if you had, uh, Carl, you had all your kids. How many you got? Like a dozen, six, you know, five, something like that, you know. And you give all your kids, all your kids. Carl's on our leadership team, a good friend of mine, so I can get on him right now. Uh, and you give all your kids, all your kids, four of your kids, you give them a red rubber ball. And in one kid, you give a iPad. Now, how would that go over in your family? Not very well. Not very well. Somebody would figure out, hey, they like the iPad kid better than the rest of the rubber ball kids. And it's kind of like this, this, this coat of many colors was kind of like that deal here. I mean, here he kind of stood out. It was kind of like, okay, he's going to wear this really nice coat. Obviously, that means he's not going to do too much work in the fields. Because we don't want his coat to be messed up. And, and he's going to stand out. He's, he's got this kind of thing. And so that's what happens. And it, when it says in Genesis, beginning with Genesis 37, you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Genesis 37. It says in verse 4, it says, when, their, when his brothers, Joseph's brothers, saw that their father loved him more than any of them, what happened? It says they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Not only that, Joseph was... A, a dreamer, and he was naive early on. He began to have these dreams. And these dreams, he knew they were from God because every time he had the dream, it was kind of the same dream. And the dream was that some way something happened, and at the end of the dream, all of his brothers was bar- bowing down to, to Joseph. And Joseph was naive enough to go to his brothers one day when they were sitting there eating their Cheerios. And he says, brothers... I had a dream last night. And in the dream last night, this is what happened. You know, we had this happen, this happen, this happen. At the end of it, you all bowed down to me. Now, they already hated him because he was the favorite. And so this only made him hate him more. 
And so you see the dysfunction of the family that he grew up in. Uh, and, and I would just simply say this. If you have a dream and it's kind of something to do with your family that makes puts them down and you puts you up, don't share the dream. Don't share the dream. Because the issue, it'll, it will not help too much. And then Genesis uh, uh, 37, and later on we see Joseph is out. I mean, uh, the, Joseph's brothers are out of the field. And, and his father sends them out to kind of see how they're doing. And it says here in Genesis 37, verses 19, it says, Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Here he comes. That God has already told us that we're going to bow down to him. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns. And say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. We'll take care of that dreamer. But then in verse 26 and 27, the one brother, Judah, says, Judah says to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. And after all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. He's kind of nice. He's not going to kill him. He's just going to sell him. You know, I guess that's better. At least he seems better on the surface. And his brothers agreed. And so we read the story. And today I'm just going to tell parts of the story, read parts of the story, and talk about some key elements here. So that we, if you read through the story, if you've read chapter 3 this week, you know that what happened was, was he was sold into slavery. And he's sold into slavery. He's taken into Egypt. And he says, go, go in there. He's taken and he's sold to a guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar was the captain of the guard of the Pharaoh. He was kind of a big wheel. He was a, a person who was, who was well known. He was, it was a powerful person. And the amazing thing that happens with Joseph, and Joseph is a young man at this time, a, a teenager probably, what happens is, our older teen, is what happens is, is he, he's put in this household, he's a slave in this household, but because of his incredible administrative abilities, his incredible leadership abilities, all those things obviously that come out, that Potiphar recognizes that. Be a good leader himself. And he places Joseph eventually in charge of everything in his household. So much so that it says in Scripture that, that Potiphar didn't have to do anything except eat food. Everything else was just taken care of. I mean, wouldn't that be great? To have somebody that comes in and does everything for you? I mean, that's how good Joseph was. But this was a large household with lots of things going on. And, and he does, it's kind of like, you know, uh, the president of the United States stuff. Picking a janitor to, to take over the West Wing. It's kind of the deal. And that's what happens here in Scripture. And so Joseph excels in the household for a while. But at the same time, we see the story going on that it takes a desperate wife's house uh, a kind of turn. Because Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's wife, who is, um, uh, I guess, an attractive, probably a trophy wife, I don't know, you know. Potiphar's a big dude, you know, and here's this, she notices this young guy, of course, he's taking care of everything, he's doing a lot of stuff, he's, it says that he's handsome and strong, and, and all these things in scripture, and so he, the, she notices that, and, and I guess Potiphar's gone a lot, he's out doing his uh, captain of the guard thing, and, and doing his thing, and so what happens is, over, after a while, she begins to notice him, and she begins this process, and it says very clearly in scripture, she began this process of trying to seduce him, not just uh, it, it wasn't kind of like in a small way. It wasn't a big way. She said, come to bed with me. She literally says that in scripture. That's what she asked him to do. And so here's this young man in slavery in a household. He's been, he's raised up. He's there. 
And what he does is that he, he has this dilemma and what he, he says, what does he do? And so in verses 9 and 10 of verses chapter 39, uh, this is, this is his response to Potiphar's wife. He says, my master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God talking about going to bed with her, which she had asked him to do. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, this wasn't a one-time deal. This was like every day she said the same thing. He refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. And, and we know that the next thing we'll talk about in a minute, what happens next. The, the thing is, is here's Joseph. He did nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. But sometimes I find in life, and I think all of us have found in life, that sometimes, and I'm sure he was disappointed because here he had these dreams that he was going to be somebody great, and he became a slave, and he gets in the household, and he rises up, and then he, he gets in this dilemma where he's, where he's, he's in, a, in this, this pickle where his, this lady wants to, who has power, wants him to do something wrong. And he could have very easily justified his disappointment and all the things that went wrong in his life, couldn't he? He could have said, you know, disappointment some, does not justify disobedience, though. That's the point for today. Disappointment does not justify disobedience. So often in life, we can be disappointed because things aren't happening the way we want them to. A study said that the number one, uh, uh, the number one temptation of Christian singles is what? Anybody want to know? Sexual sin, number one disappointment of, of, or the number one temptation of Christian singles, not just singles in general, but Christian singles. The, uh, 90% of Christian singles said that sexual sin is the number one temptation. I heard a, 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 Christ, a Christian guy who's a single one time said, well, you know what the, you know what the, uh, other 10%, what their greatest sin is, their greatest temptation is? What? Lying. Lying. See that we have this tendency to rationalize. You know, God, if you're not going to come through for me in this area, I mean, I've been I've been single for a long time, and and, and I want to have a relationship and and have a marriage and all these things. You know, if it's not working, then it must be okay for me to to give in. And we can rationalize it because disappointment. Sometimes we think it justifies disobedience, but it does not. Here, and that's the point in Scripture today with Joseph. And it's not just, and it's not just true for those who are single, but for those who are married too, because the only thing worse than being alone is wishing that you were alone. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times, I mean, how many times a wife does not, you know, how many wives not remember, they remember the last time that they felt loved by their husband. They just, they just, I've talked to women over and over and over. And, and, and so often they don't feel loved by their husband or they don't feel listened to, they don't feel honored. And so, so many of them, what happens is, is that it feels okay for them to flirt at the office or to reconnect with a, with an old flame from the high school years online. It's way too easy to do that nowadays. And, and for, for husbands, you know, so I've talked to husbands and so many husbands have wives who, who, who they say to me these things like, well, my wife makes intimacy, intimacy seem something like a chore that's somewhere between, uh, cleaning, cleaning clothes and, and, Clean, changing a dirty diaper. That's the, the level of where I see intimacy at. And so what happens is because of the disappointment in the relationship and the marriage, what happens is, is that justifies for many men logging onto that website because he has needs. 
See, for the story of Joseph, the story of Joseph is a story of a person who says this. Disappointment does not justify disobedience. So in our moments of disappointments, we have this tendency to do that, though. But in Joseph's story is not going as he planned. He did not plan to get to be where he is. He had these dreams. And Joseph had dreamed of greatness, of prominence. He had these dreams of, you know, of his brothers bowing down before him and going like, where are those dreams? Where's God in all of this? And what happens is we read the story after he says no to Potiphar's wife. What happens next? Potiphar's wife feels rejected, and so what does she do? She claims that he rapes her. And she gets him thrown into prison. And Joseph spends, okay, he's already bad enough, for three years he's been a slave, and now for the next ten years, he's a prisoner. All for doing nothing wrong. Maybe other than being a little naive earlier on in life. And as we study the story, we will see many people who make decisions that lead to disappointments. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we studied Adam and Eve. What was the, what was the decision they made that led to their own disappointment? Of taking to the apple. Of eating to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They did it themselves, though. They brought the disappointment on themselves. And then last week, we talked about Abraham and Sarah. What was the thing they did? That caused disappointment to come into their life. They brought Hagar into the picture. We talked about that last week. They decided to take matters. God wasn't working fast enough for them. So they decided to take, bring Hagar in so that God, you know, they can have a, have a baby and, and, and do it that way because God wasn't doing it fast enough for them. But it led to their own, led to disappointments in their life as well. And it was their own decisions that, that did that. But in Joseph's story, and this is the difference here, in Joseph's story, Joseph had done nothing to deserve the things that were happening to him. It wasn't his sin. It wasn't his disobedience. It wasn't his rebellion. What was? It was just life. It was life. He was the victim of somebody else's decisions and choices. And I'm wondering if Joseph thought about this. I'm wondering if he had this question in his mind. Where is God in the midst of my disappointment? Where is God in the midst of my disappointment? This 13-year period of his life of slavery and being in prison, where is God? And I want to tell you this morning, I understand, I know this. I mean, some of you are in the chapter of your story right now, and you're asking the question, where is God? I mean, over the years, I've heard all kinds of stories, and I know that people are going... I mean, I remember stories of, of, a, of a man who'd gone through several, several rounds of chemo, and there didn't seem any hope, and he's going, where's God? Or the woman whose husband who had left her while she was pregnant with her first child, and she asked, where's God? Or the teen who grew up abused and, and struggled with cutting, and she asked, where's God? And that... And, to the mother who took, who took was taking care of a daughter who had been paralyzed because she'd been hit by a drunk driver. And she asked, where is God? Where is God in our disappointment and our devastation? Where is God? Joseph was asking while he's in the dungeon. Well, the Bible tells us where God was. In Genesis 39, 2, while Joseph was a slave, it says this in verse 2, it says, The Lord was with Joseph. 
He was with him. He wasn't somewhere off. And then later on in chapter 39, verse 23, while he was in prisoner in the dungeon, it says the Lord was with Joseph. He was there again. The Lord was with Joseph. And to both of those 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 planks and he wasn't a far away he maybe didn't seem but eventually as we read the whole story as we look back on the story we realize that jo- that god was with joseph through this whole time and he's with everyone through because he tells us in scripture in the new testament which we'll study later on that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. so where is god well, in the middle of the story, as, as he goes to prison, and, and he goes there, and once again, a, a horrible thing happened to, to, to him again, the warden sees the same thing that Potiphar saw, the incredible abilities of Joseph. And so what does he do? In the midst of this dark place in his life, what happens is, is that Joseph rises up and becomes the head, uh, the kind of the, the overseer of the prison, working with the warden, a very important person. And this was huge because during the period of those 10 years where he was in prison, he encounters a whole bunch of people, but two in particular. And the two people he encounters in particular were a guy who was called a cupbearer and another guy was a baker. And these were both people who served in Pharaoh's court. And the cupbearer, what his job was, it was a very, it sounds like a kind of a menial job, but it was a very important job. It's kind of a, could be a fatal job was he would actually be the person who tastes the wine before the king or the pharaoh would take it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. You know, he's the first line of defense. And so that was his job. And then the baker was obviously what he did. And But while he, they, these guys were in prison, they both had these dreams and they couldn't figure out what was going on, these visions. And they... and. Some way they encounter Joseph while they're in prison and Joseph encounters and, and, and shares with them because God allows him to do this, shares the, the, the interpretation of the dreams. And later on, the exact interpretation as we read scripture that Joseph shares to these guys, this cupbearer and to this baker, the exact interpretation of the dreams comes true. And finally, down the road, the cupbearer gets out of prison and he's back in Pharaoh's court and, and we find him there and, and Pharaoh has these disturbing dreams. And I'm telling you a whole long story. Like I said, it was a whole bunch of chapters in a very short period of time. But he, the, the Pharaoh has some dreams and, and he brings in all of his advisors. And none of his advisors can tell him what the dreams mean. He had, they'll have no, have no clue what the dreams mean. And for some reason, the, the cupbearer goes, Oh, hey, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. There was this guy back in prison. His name's Joseph. And he might be able to help you. I mean, he told me some things and he told the story, obviously, to Pharaoh about how he had interpreted the dreams and how it had come true. And he's going like, well, you know, none of these other guys, these are all useless. So let's, let's pull this guy out of prison. And so it says they took him out of prison. They cleaned him up. They brought him before Pharaoh. And the long story short is that he interprets the dreams and Pharaoh is so impressed. Pharaoh is so impressed that he says this in Genesis 41, verse 38. He says, so Pharaoh asked them, after he hears the interpretation, can we find anyone like this man talking about Joseph, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one discern- as so discerning and wise as you. Because of that, okay, stop a minute. Where was, Fa- where was Joseph two hours ago? In prison, in a hole in the ground, literally. That's what the prisons were like back then. A dungeon. 
He said, because you're so wise and because you've interpreted this dream, you shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I therefore put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. I mean, how in the world can you go any faster than that? How can you rise from from one place to another any faster than that? He was a slave, a prisoner, now deputy Pharaoh, vice Pharaoh. I don't know what the term is. Second most powerful person. Is there a faster way to that position than that? I mean, even, I'm talking about 13 years even. How do you rise to that position? I mean, we saw that last week. I mean, we saw how does, you know, God decides to populate a, na- a nation. And who does he choose? An infertile Elderly couple. God decides to raise up a leader to save his people. Who does he choose? He chooses a young man who grows up as a slave in prison. God does it because God can do that. And so we read on in the story and, and, and he raises him up and because, and, and the, basically the story was, the interpretation was there's going to be seven, seven years of plenty and during that time you need to save up and store crops because there's going to be seven year famine. And so because of that, the nation of Egypt was saved, but also the neighbors, all the people around them who had no resources because it affected a widespread area, they become, began to come and to try to buy food from the Egyptians. So, so Joseph, what he does, what he does is that he, he, he's in the position and, and remember he's second in charge and, and basically he's the one that's delving out all the stuff and dealing with all the stuff that's there because of his influence. And the story goes and we read that Joseph's brothers who had the, the same guys who 13 years previous to that or maybe even further along than that earlier. No, it's been a lot longer than that now, 20 years now. What happens is, is that they have, these are the same guys that, that sold him into slavery all these years before. And they're back in the, in, in their, in their, in their homeland and, and the famine's going on there and the father sends them to Egypt to get, buy food and they come to Joseph. They don't know it's him and they come before, remember the dream that Joseph had when he was a kid. I, you know, all my brothers are going to come and bow down. He said, I have his dream back when he was a kid. And what do they do? They come and they bow down to this man they don't know as their brother, who's the second most powerful person probably in the world at that time. And it had been 22 years since they sold him into slavery. They don't recognize him. And so what happens is, I guess Joseph decides to have a little fun with them. And over the next couple of chapters, you read some stuff about he puts them some tests. He tries to see if they've changed their heart, if, if things have changed in their life, if these if their attitudes have changed. And, and, and so what he does, he goes through a bunch of things. But finally, in Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 and 5, Joseph can no longer control himself. He can no longer hold back the emotions and all the stuff that has gone on. And he says this, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? (laughs) And then this is what it says about his brothers. But his brothers were not able to answer him. I mean, what do you say? 
<laughs> what do you say to a guy that you put in, that you sold into slavery 22 years ago? What do you say to a guy that not, not only did you sell into slavery, but now he has the power of life and death over you? Says they were not able to answer him because they were terrified of his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt now. And then he says this. This is the most incredible thing. He says, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. And this is what he says, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. You know what Joseph understood and sometimes we don't understand? He understood the big part of the story. He saw God's big picture. He saw God's upper story that God, in the midst of all the things that had gone on wrong, God was at work to bring him into a position where it eventually saved not only the people of Egypt, but all his whole family, his whole nation. Remember God's plan we talked about last week was to build a nation. He starts with this infertile elderly couple. And they grow from that, and and now we see God continually at work, even in, in the midst of all the things that are there. See, they didn't know at the time when they sold him into slavery, when the brothers didn't know it, when they sold him into slavery, they didn't know what was going to happen. Do you know? Do you know what's going to? Anybody know what's going to happen tomorrow? I mean, really, you have some plans. I know what I'm supposed to do this afternoon. I'm supposed to get in a car and I'm supposed to ride to Miracle Camp this afternoon to meet with a bunch of FEC pastors and uh, for the next two days. Okay, that's what I plan to do. Now, whether it happens, I don't know. I hope it does. But none of us know when we make plans what's going to happen. And, you know, and so when they didn't know that when he sold that when he was a slave or a prisoner they didn't know what what that was going to lead to god didn't cause the brothers to sell joseph into slavery did that did he god didn't cause that they just made a choice to do that god didn't cause potiphar's wife to try and seduce joseph god didn't cause joseph to be thrown into prison but this is what god does this is what god does he takes all the decisions and the broken pieces of our lives and the disappointments. And he says, I can work with that. I can work with that. And so often we're such a hurry for God to act that it's hard to see in the moment how God is going to work or how he has worked. But after the fact, we say, oh, God worked in that. I'm going to look at that in my own life and I'm asking, you know, you know, what's the deal here? You know, I think all the stuff that's happened in my life and how it leads me. I will tell you when I was... 16 years old, I had no clue that I would be right here today. This was the last place in the world that I would want to be. Literally. When I was 16, people knew me back then. I was the shyest, quietest. I know it's hard to imagine. The, you know, person who would never speak in public. I literally, when I was in a small group, I was the last person to ever speak. If I made me, if, I hated it when they, you know, go around a group and you had to, you know, say something. That was me. And then I began, you know, then I remember some things that how God began to work. And I didn't see it at the time. I mean, I didn't see the time that he would bring people and opportunities into my life. And, and I didn't know, you know, let me tell you, I mean, some of it was bad stuff. I remember when I was 18 years old, 19 years old, our church went through the church I was in. And I was very involved, went through this church split. Basically, me and everybody got mad at each other. Half people went in one direction, half people went in another direction. 
And at that age, 19, 19 years old, guess what I did? I said, if that's what Christianity is going to be, I'm going to leave the church. And I left the church. For two years, I left the church. Had nothing to do with the church. I said, if Christians are going to be that kind of hypocrites, why do I want to be a part of that? But during that time, God gave me the opportunity to do some stuff outside the church uh, that, um, that made a difference in my life. He gave me opportunities to go and to, and to work with some kids and to do some things. And I never saw that as being something down the road I'd be doing. And then I never knew in a million years that I would go back to church. But, but you know, a couple of years later, our church, our home church, called a new pastor. And, and he had a daughter. And I will tell you, the reason I went back to church is because of a red-haired girl. Who eventually became my wife. Isn't that real spiritual? But, I mean, God used that, that move. I mean, I didn't know that was going to be the thing that God used. And then, you know, and then, then he, and then went through a process of time where, you know, I was still not, I still never saw to call myself to be a pastor who preached every Sunday, who talked to people every Sunday. And so what happened was, is that I said, okay, I'll be a youth pastor. Because back then, you know, uh, Chris speaks a lot here, but not all of our youth pastors speaks a lot. So I could just do my youth thing and, and, you know, do the thing with the kids. And I enjoyed doing the things with the kids. And I did that for a number of years or 10 years and, and had really good success in doing it. Had a lot of fun doing that. Enjoyed doing that. But in the midst of that, I would never have thought that God was going to do what he, and he didn't do it, but he used it to direct, redirect my past because I went to the first church out of seminary and I was there like five years and, and on a Sunday afternoon, after this preacher, he was 42 years old, preached the pastor of my church, Richard Walden. That afternoon, he had a heart attack and died. The church had grown about 100 people the year before. And man, all of a sudden, we were in chaos. And I'd been there five years. I was a student pastor, did discipleship and stuff. Well, and all of a sudden, I was thrown into leadership. And I preached every once in a while. And now they ask me, hey, we don't know what else to do. Can you just go ahead and preach every week and do everything else you do too? And I said, well... <clears throat> With a lot of help. And so over the next year, I had the opportunity of teaching every week. And during that period of time, because of the death of a pastor, I had the opportunity to teach. And I found I like doing this. And I wouldn't use some of those early sermons now. Thank goodness you would be so bored with them and it would be horrible. But the thing is, is that, you know, God grew me up and, and helped me through this time. He took, he took that, that hard thing. And I just keep saying, there's all these different things. And I'm going back, you know, I know, okay, God... Uh, a church split, um, uh, a new pastor coming with a daughter, um, you know, the whole opportunity for, oh, and also I didn't tell, you know, I told you about the architecture thing, went to school two years and I said, okay, architecture is going to be my thing. Well, uh, math wasn't my thing. So I said, I got to do something else. Obviously that's not, uh, engineering's not that. I mean, failure led to me to redirecting my life in regards to education as well. But all those things put together, God puts all those things together and God works, is working through those things to where I am today. And he's been working through all the different things in your life. Some of them are successes, but a lot of times they're failures. To bring you to where you need to be. I love the verse in Romans eight twenty eight that says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love them, love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It doesn't say God makes all things happen. It says God will take all that stuff. I can work with that. All the stuff. And I can put it together for good. 
into your life. And all of us start off thinking our story will be written a certain way. But sometimes it never ends up the way we planned it. What I do know is this, is that what it says in Romans eight twenty eight that God can work for good through all the stuff. If we'll just trust in him. That's what Joseph did. I mean, how could else could Joseph have said to his brothers, hey guys, don't beat yourself up over it. I mean, you might have thrown me into slavery, you know, 22 years ago. But look what God did. The only way you can, you can say that is that you're focused on God and the big picture of what God's doing and, and your part in that. And that's what God wants us to do. To understand he, we, we all play a part in the story. And he's got this big plan. And he's working through all of us. And a lot of times we don't see it. You know, right now, your story, maybe the word to describe your story, might be disappointed. It might be divorced. It might be fired. It might be abused. But I will tell you that God gets the last word. And God can take all the broken pieces and he can make something good out of it. If we'll just trust him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.